Good morning. The reading for today is from Leviticus chapter 25, verses 35 through 38. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him money at interest, nor shall you give your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you to the land of Canaan and to be your God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thanks, Ben and Emmy. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you all. A uh, couple things um, before we get started. First, uh, I, I take this for granted, so I probably don't mention it enough, but um, it's amazing to me every single Sunday I'm here and every Sunday that I'm away and I'm watching on the YouTube channel uh, how God has gifted us with this incredible music team that we have. I mean, there's... Um, it really is, yeah. Uh, on Thursday night, uh, Tyler Thompson led a, a sort of a, uh, like a gathering and a meeting of the music team and the worship team, including the people who run the slides and run the booth, all the musicians and everything. There was a huge group of people here, and it was just stunning how God has blessed this church with, uh, with them. And so even on a Sunday like today when Tyler's away, um, you have uh, Malia and, and um, Caleb leading, and even if they weren't here, we'd have other people who would be able to lead. It's, it's great to not have to worry about those, those kinds of things because um, th- what we call worship, uh, which is kind of a misnomer because the whole service is actually worshiping, including um, the teaching and the proclamation. The, everything is worship, but what we call worship, when, when we do that, we talk, we're talking about the music, um, uh, is so important for people to be able to connect. Some people connect more with the lyrics uh, in the songs than they do with a sermon, and some people connect more with a sermon. And so we need to remember that this is a, an entire worship service, and all of these parts come together to try to give us the narrative of the gospel together, and so it's all important. And I just wanted to mention, we're blessed in that way here at Arcadia. Uh, the other thing, not quite as happy, um, many of you have known over the last um, year and a half, uh, Clark Demlin, he's um, the guy that, uh, we, that uh, Redemption Central did that video on, very popular video. Uh, he normally attended the second service with his uh, nurse, and a couple weeks ago, he finally succumbed to his disease, passed away. Um, and so we uh, have been asked to do his um, memorial service here in this church by his family, his parents. And it's going to be this coming Saturday at 1 o'clock. And uh, you're not obligated to come, but you are invited to come to this celebration of, of uh, Clark's life. So 1 o'clock here, uh, and then the, after the service, there will be a reception out on the patio as well. So we are, by the way, if you're new, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad you're here. Now, we are in the midst of a series called Countercultural Convictions that we started in February 2020 and then was interrupted by the pandemic, and now we've come back to it. <clears throat> and we have talked about uh, a number of different things. We've talked about specifically Jesus, 
Uh, we've talked about the Bible and its authority in our lives. We've, um, more recently, we talked about why we're even doing the series in the first place, which we didn't do when we first did the series, and we thought when we came back to it, we should do that. And then we talked about uh, gender. That was uh, Justin Anderson, our founding pastor, who we invited back to do that because he's done a lot of work in that area. Um, Trey talked to us about uh, working with the vulnerable, which is very important, and why that's countercultural. I talked last week about uh, the biblical sexual ethic and how countercultural that is. And, and it's been a great series. It's been an important series. And one thing about preaching, this is different than what redemption usually does. We're preaching topically. Usually we preach what's called exegetically. We walk through um, books of the Bible verse by verse. And we're, we've interrupted our walk through the Gospel of John to be able to do this series. But uh, one of the things about preaching topically as we've been doing in this series, is that we finally get a shot at spending an entire message focused on one important issue as opposed to walking through the context of the teaching uh, of the Bible or one of the Gospels. So when, by doing this topical thing, we get to go all in on that topic for 40, 45, 50 minutes, and, and we get to hit that topic uh, from as many angles as possible. And this topic today is no exception. The topic today is generosity. So here's what we're going to do today. Two things. One's going to be fairly short. The other one's going to be fairly long. We're going to first of all explain why generosity is countercultural. And then we're just going to go through some biblical texts, and there are plenty of them that are available, that, that speak to this issue and help us to see the comprehensive nature of the importance of this principle in our lives as followers uh, of Jesus. So First question, why is this countercultural? Well, the answer to that for somebody uh, like me who, who, whose uh, vocation is in ministry and in studying the Bible and, and all of that, the answer for me is fairly simple, but I know it may sound somewhat complex as we explain it, so I'll do the best I can and then hope that you'll go back and read these texts more thoroughly so that you can gain a better understanding of them. But in Genesis 1, and especially in Genesis chapter 2, now these are the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 is the creation narrative, Genesis chapter 2 is then um, a narrative, it's still part of the creation narrative, but it focuses in on the creation of the man and the woman, their relationship, and what they are called to do in relationship with God. And what we see in Genesis chapter 2 is there is an ethos or an environment or you might call it a compulsion of generosity. That's what <clears throat> they are living under in Genesis 2. Unfortunately, that was very short-lived because right after Genesis 2 is Genesis 3. I'm an expert at math. I know how to count. But Genesis 3 is right after Genesis 2, and Genesis 2 is where all the problems begin. That's uh, where original sin is. That's the fall of humankind. That's where humankind and all of creation gets broken by sin. And so that ethos of generosity becomes an ethos of perceived scarcity. An ethos of perceived scarcity. Suddenly, rather than looking at the world as God has called Adam and Eve to do, to have this cultural mandate of being little c creators themselves, creating things to be a blessing so that um, others are blessed, so that they can, they can minister to others and serve others as chapter 2 calls uh, his creation to do. Now there's this ethos of, of scarcity, and so 
We see the world as something where we have to make sure we get ours first. And, and that line of where enough is enough is always moving. It's always a moving goalpost. I, I've heard this several times in the financial management uh, industry. People say all the time, figure out your number that you need to be able to retire. Whatever that number is, $2 million, whatever it is, that, get your number and then make sure you double it before you decide on that number. It, it's just like, it's just like this, this moving goalpost, it's never enough. And so what happened in Genesis 3 is now with this ethos of perceived scarcity, we become people who are greedy, we covet, we are consumers rather than producers, and we're into accumulation. And that's a problem. And that's the world and culture that we live in. And, and when I talk about accumulation and consumption, it's not just resources, but it, it's things like status and power and influence. It's everything. We're just trying to accumulate. We're, we're just so worried that we won't be sustainable. We're just so worried that we won't be significant. It is the opposite of what my friend Tim Mon always says, that Christians should seek to be small. Seek to be small. That, that's, that's the idea behind John chapter 3, you know, where John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, he must increase and I must decrease. That's countercultural. The idea that we have enough, the idea that we need to share, the idea that we need to be looking out for others is actually countercultural. And I know some of you may push back and go, but everybody's talking about how we need to care for others, and everybody's saying that. You have to, I, I, I gotta tell you, you have to separate the virtue signaling from people who are truly concerned about that. A lot of people are doing that just to put it on their resume. In fact, uh, volunteerism and generosity has become a way to elevate our status, our power, and our influence, and, and that's not what scripture calls us to. Scripture calls us to a humble, gentle, other-oriented generosity that doesn't give us anything other than what we're called to do. That's countercultural. So Christians are called to ditch this ethos of scarcity and coveting for generosity. By the way, I don't know if you've noticed this. I hope you have. But it's incredible how often on all of these countercultural topics at some point, we go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to be able to build a foundation and a basis to be able to talk about that. That should tell us something about Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Here's what it should tell us. It's important that you know and read and study Genesis 1, 2, and 3, because if you don't, the rest of the Bible is good. You're going to struggle to make sense of the rest of the Bible if you don't understand those first three chapters. Now, one more thing before we get started on the biblical passages. For the church... For the church, this message on generosity is not, is not about us making budget. It's not. It's about the church making disciples. If you're truly following Jesus, we should rarely have to talk about money. So, to the text. The first text that we're going to look at is actually not in Leviticus. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you want to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, spend a little while in this passage, verses 6 through 11. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. This is the second letter that we have, that we possess, that we've been able to translate and know about. Um, if you do the historical 
uh, work, you realize that Paul probably wrote four letters to the church at Corinth, and we don't have two of them, which is sad, but God is sovereign, and so for some reason we, we don't get to have those other two. 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is really 3 Corinthians historically, but anyway, just more math to confuse you, all right? So, verses 6 through 11, Paul writes this. The point is this, so I'll explain why he says that, because there's context there. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, God. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness." You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You've got to remember that this is a highly agrarian culture. This is not a, an urban culture that Paul and, and the early church lived in. And so all of the metaphors and illustrations are, are uh, you, you know, sort of farmy, okay? So just recognize that he's, he's doing that because he understands his audience. So, before we actually go through this verse by verse, I'll just say, sort of as an overview, the characteristics of a generous person, according to this text, there are three. The generous person is grateful, the generous person is humble, and the generous person is joyful. The curse that those who are not generous must endure, the curse and really there's more than one curse, the curses are greed, covetousness, humiliation, scarcity, and insatiability. Insatiability, the inability to satisfy your desires. That's a curse. Solomon in Ecclesiastes, when he's writing about wealth and money and stuff and accumulation, he says, the one who seeks after money, never has money enough. <laughs> and that's just true. You know, I, I just need more, a little bit more. I just need a little bit more. And then you get a little bit more, and you still need just a little bit more. It's never, ever enough. That's insatiability. So what is Paul saying here? Well, this passage, 6 through 11, comes in the wake of Paul reminding the church at Corinth that there is big trouble in the mother church in Jerusalem because of a devastating famine, and the church in Jerusalem needs help, needs tangible, resourced help, and he's asking other Christians around the Mediterranean, so he's also asking the Christians in Thessalonica and in Philippi and in Galatia, he's asking all of them um, to, to help the church in Jerusalem. And interestingly enough, Corinth would be one of the wealthier churches, but they're being probably the most stingy of all the churches. And so he's trying to help them along in this. And so verse 6 is a simple and yet profound truth. You reap what you sow. You harvest what you plant. One of the challenges in our current cultural context 
is how many people desperately want to be reapers and believe they deserve to be reapers, but they never want to sow and they aren't interested in sowing. So we have a lot of reapers running around, but not many people interested in sowing. We want the harvest without any of the sweat, hard work, sacrifice, investment, or risk. Now, it doesn't work that way, and we know it doesn't, but we just don't like it. We'd rather it work the other way. And, and, and especially when it comes to God, all of us try to receive more than we give. And here you go. Now, hang with me on this. The irony, of course, is that the only way for that to happen to receive more than we give is to give generously, sacrificially. This is what Paul is saying here. You have to let things go before you can really start to truly receive an abundance. Okay? And then the other irony is that, in fact, we do receive more from God than we give. At the cross, we gave our sin. Jesus gave us his righteousness. Who wins in that transaction? He gives more than we do, ultimately. And the reason he gives more than we do, for that reason, you and I should understand that we should be grateful and humble and joyfully generous. Paul then goes on in this passage to remind us that our reaping in this context, our harvesting, may not always be money for money. That's something else we have to realize. It's not always going to be money for money, but rather the fruit that we harvest, the fruit that we reap, can come in the form of righteousness or wisdom or spiritual insight or relational capital or vocational prowess or just the feeling that by serving somebody else, you have actually been served in return, even though that wasn't necessarily the purpose. Okay? So... So in other words, this reap what you sow principle in the Bible is not always apples for apples or gold for gold. We have Jesus, and therefore the harvest of our reaping is actually unlimited. And that's really good news. And then look at verse 7. I'll just read it again. Each of you must give what he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is probably the most well-known verse in this passage and uh, related to this topic of generosity. And here's what this verse tells us. Unlike the Old Testament, under the new covenant of Jesus, under the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, the once-for-all, it-is-finished sacrifice of Jesus, God no longer commands Christ followers to give a certain amount, but rather instead he gives us opportunities to give. He gives us opportunities to be generous. He gives us the opportunity to do it with joy rather than with a grudging sense of duty. Now, isn't this better than the law of a command? Uh, that's, that's not a trick question. This is better, okay? This is way better. This is the ethos of love. This, this idea of giving is now surrounded by an ethos of love. It was in the Old Testament too. It was just manifested it a little bit differently. So a couple of things here. You've probably heard the word tithe before. The word is actually an Old Testament word and it means 10%. And most people think that's it. That's the, the maximum goal that we are striving toward if we can give 10% of our, by the way, gross income, not at net income. If we can give 10% of the gross, we have hit 
nirvana on giving to the church, okay? Well, yes and no. The Old Testament does command that amount. It's an Old Testament word. But here's the funny thing about the Old Testament process of giving to the temple and giving to God and giving to the church. It starts at 10%. 10% is actually the floor. 10% is the bare minimum that you're supposed to give. When you go through the Old Testament and go through the Old Testament math, and again, I went to North High School in Phoenix, so I know how to do this, and you add up all of the other commanded giving, the people of God were called to give a grand total of, depending on how you understand it and interpret it, and whether or not you're doing good high school math or not, it's 26 to 28% of your income. 26 to 28% was what was commanded in the Old Testament. So be glad that there is a new covenant. Be glad. Be joyful. Be thankful. Second of all, because giving generously has a new standard under the covenant, a standard that is, about, that is more about our attitude than it is about an amount. That's so important to understand. This standard is about attitude instead of amount. Generosity is now about our intimate relationship with God rather than a command to follow a law. So this is why I don't spend a lot of time talking about giving in the church. I, I, I don't do it much here. I spent almost 12 years at my former, leading my former church. Hardly ever did it then as well. God always seemed to provide. So this is why I don't talk a lot about it. And some people have actually wondered. Some people even despair. They come to me in despair that I don't talk about it more. Well, here you go. I'm talking about it now. And, and of course... When there, is a, when there is a definitive need, when we have a capital campaign, of course I'm going to talk about it, but I'm going to explain what's going on so that you know what you're giving to. When there's a shortfall of some sort, again, it's not just going to be, here, you have to trust it. We're going to explain what the shortfall is, and we'll ask you to give. Or someone is in dire straits, of course, we're going to come to the community and we're going to lay that out for you. But what we also contend is that while this is something we should take very seriously, it is also something that needs to earnestly be worked out between you and God. This is something that you need to go to God with and be honest about it. This is a discipleship issue. It's not a command issue. And we are called to practice generosity not out of compulsion, as Paul says, but out of joy and gratitude. So here's what's interesting. That word cheerful God loves a cheerful giver. Literally, that word means with hilarity. You are to give hilariously. When you, when you um, push your button on the internet giving or when you walk by our giving boxes in the back and drop the envelope in, you should just start laughing hysterically. That's the way we are, we are called to give. Now, I've talked about this before. Some of you have heard this story before. You can take a little three-minute nap right now or, or go get some coffee at the coffee bar, whatever you want to do. The rest of you, you should hear this, okay? I came to Christ when I was 27 years old. I was making $40,000 a year, and I recognized that I probably should give something to the church, and so I started giving $10 a week. Now do the math. That's about 1.3%. Again, on the net, not on, not on the... Um, on the gross, not on the net. You know, people say, well, is, isn't the giving the 10% after taxes? 
Well, no, once you start down that slope, okay, it's after taxes, it's after mortgage, it's after utilities, it's after insurance, it's after your cell phone, okay? Oh, I'm just giving 10% on the surplus, and interesting, I don't have any surplus. Okay, so, no, it's, it's on the gross, it's 10% on the gross. Anyway, so I'm giving $10 a week, about 1.3%, okay? And I was like, So eventually, I, I, was, I, I started reading the Bible, as a follower of Christ should do, and I started running into these texts about generosity and about giving and all that stuff. And pretty soon I was pretty well convicted by the Holy Spirit that I really needed to be giving 10%. So started giving 10%. So 4,000 a year. Okay? And, and, and I was really proud I just confess to you, I was so proud. I, I made it. I made the 10%. Look at me. North Phoenix Baptist Church will not be able to survive without my $4,000. Good thing I'm here. Okay. Then I really began to study these texts, and especially this text right here in 2 Corinthians. And I began to understand it, and my giving was revolutionized. And here are some things that happened. First of all, I became more joyful and happy about my giving rather than feeling duty-bound. The fact that I was proud of my giving also meant that I was doing it out of duty and compulsion. So it became joyful and happy. My giving became a blessing rather than a burden. My giving actually then became, believe it or not, more than 10%. I wasn't keeping track of it. I wasn't doing the math. I was working with the Holy Spirit on this. It became more than 10%. And the reason I knew that is because when I get my taxes back, I would do the math. Okay? But I missed the money way less than the duty-bound 10%. We just missed it less. And then last of all, uh, this humbled me rather than being a source of pride. And then I realized I was actually in sin when I was giving the prideful duty-bound 10% because it was all about me heroically meeting my obligation. When my giving became about who God is and what he's done for me, my giving increased while my pride decreased and I became a more joyful person, at least in that area of my life. <laughs> Paul is saying all of that in this verse. And then look at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So Paul says that this principle of hilarious giving, of hilarious generosity, of reaping what we sow, of humble, thankful, opposite of greedy giving, applies to everything in our lives because God is the gracious redeemer of our lives. It applies to everything. So cheerful giving also applies to our time and our talents as well as our treasures. And the point is simple. We have been given so much from Christ, we can afford to give much. And then in the spirit of writing a college research paper, in the next verse he quotes a couple of Old Testament prophets in order to bolster his point about how God, is, uh, God not only saves us, but he graciously gives all things to us, including but not limited to righteousness. 
And then finally, in verse 11, Paul writes, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Again, generosity includes our wealth and resources, but it also includes everything else that we have in our life to give, time, talent, discipleship, service. So now we're going to move on to that Leviticus passage that Ben read for us. 25, 35, verses 35 through 38. If your brother becomes poor, I hear pages wrestling. I love that sound, so I'm going to wait until you get there. That's what I need to do. Now, don't you just keep flipping pages because you don't want me to continue. <laughs> Shelby. <laughs> If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a strange, uh, as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him, or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Essentially, verse 38 is the Old Testament gospel. That's their redemption. Okay? And when he, when he talks about, when God talks about your brother, he's talking, he's talking about a kinsman or a kinswoman. He's talking about um, the people of God. He's not saying your, your, brother, your DNA brother. He's talking about your community, your faith community. So I'm also excited that Leviticus makes an appearance in a Sunday morning sermon. This happens every 15 or 20 years. <laughs> and I love verse 35 because the assumption in that verse is that we who are God's people for sure are already being generous to the stranger and the sojourner. So why wouldn't we be generous to our own? Okay. So what's a sojourner? A sojourner is a person who is moving from place to place, trying to make some sense of meaning and stability, and someone who's not as well off as you or me. And the reason for the generosity? Well, the reason for the generosity you see in verse 38, the Old Testament gospel. He saved them out of their slavery in Egypt and gave them the land of milk and honey. So the reason for their generosity is because he's God and we're not. He's the only one who has saved us, He's the only one who provides for us, and he's the one who is with us. That should be motivation. And then you begin to combine that with some of the other Old Testament passages on, on giving, and you begin to realize that even this sort of idea that the Old Testament was all about a command to give, it was about a command to give, but there was also some, some great calls to give just based on the reality of reaping and sowing. So Proverbs 11, 24, and 25, Solomon writes, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters himself will be watered. That's Solomon saying, even though we live under the curse of Genesis 3, we should be people who are practicing to live under the blessing of Genesis 2 as the people of God. Jesus is quoted in the New Testament as saying it this way, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
And then specifically, we know Jesus said this in Matthew 10.42. He says, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, Jesus even throws in there, you're giving the cup of cold water to somebody who needs cold water because you're a disciple, because you belong to Jesus, because Jesus has been so gracious to you. That's why you would do this. Truly, I say to you, he will by, by no means lose his reward. You reap what you sow. And then finally, Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. We'll end with this passage. So go to Galatians. You can see it's almost to the end of the Bible. There's only this much left. Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, and um, this is arguably uh, the earliest New Testament document that was written. Not chronologically what happened, but the first one arguably that was written. It's between this, James, and 1 Thessalonians. The Gospels talk about stuff chronologically that happens earlier, but they were written later in the 60s, 70s, and early 90s. So here's what Paul writes. Brothers, and by the way, that includes you sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him to a, in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. Here you go. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So this passage is again about generosity, but not necessarily about wealth. It's, it's about the concept, the overarching concept, biblical concept, countercultural concept of generosity with all things as followers of Christ. And he again uses this idea of reaping and sowing of planting and harvesting. And he opens by saying, you who are spiritual, here's what that means. And I even, I think I have a slide for it too. Do I? Yes. It means those of you in the faith community who are more mature and experienced than most others and therefore are in a position of spiritual wealth to be able to help a beleaguered brother or sister. Church needs to be about that. It, it is one, in other words, who is walking well according to the Spirit of God and who is therefore in a position to give more than they necessarily need to receive in that aspect. So they're able to give more empathy. We should all be empathetic, but there are some people who are just in a position to be more empathetic, and they should be, to give more compassion, to give more time, to give more friendship, to give more counsel, and to be more available. And really, we should all be striving to be this kind of person. Now, understand, understanding seasons of life and the way things are, we can't all be this person, but we should be striving to be this person. 
And then restoring a believer who has sinned is what Moisa Silva says, is but one example of the broader obligation that Christians have to bear each other's burdens and to be generous. So, and restore, it's an interesting Greek word, because the Greek word that's translated as restore literally means to set a broken bone. We are all broken by sin. And it's the gospel that restores us. Therefore, because we've been restored by the gospel, we should be generous with our patience. This is preaching to me right now. Y'all are just listening, okay? We should be generous with our patience, with our forgiveness, with our advantages, with our resources, with our influence. And that word in in verse 1, the word translated gentleness, means power with humility. Power with humility. In other words, here's what Paul is saying, and he he expounds on this a little bit more in the passage. He says, one should never look at the weakness of others for the purpose of comparison and to try to elevate yourself, but rather for the resolve to be compassionate. Don't look at others to make yourself feel better about yourself. Look at others for ways to serve and to be compassionate. That word compassion literally means to suffer with. To suffer with. You know, wealth, and by that I mean financial wealth, is a form of power. And to be generous with wealth is an act of humility. But there's other kinds of wealth as, as well. All of these other areas can be described as ways that we have wealth. So you may have great wealth in money and resources, and so you never need someone to generously bear your burdens in that particular area of life. But what if you are under what if you are under-resourced in other areas? You have a lot of money, but you're under-resourced relationally. You're under-resourced spiritually. You're under-resourced emotionally. You're under-resourced in your time, which means in your time management, because all of us have the same amount of time. But still, you can be under-resourced in your time. So you have money, but you're under-resourced in these other areas. Wouldn't you appreciate the generosity of others in those areas to you, just as they might appreciate your generosity of wealth to them? Of course. Further, this idea of carrying a burden for another in their context was seen as an involuntary act. It was something you had to do. For instance, if a Roman soldier asked you to carry his gear, you had to. You were required to. So here, Paul is commanding the reader to recognize our responsibility to voluntarily, as Christ did with going to the cross, voluntarily assist with another's burden. So consider this. Not being in the midst of sin is also a position of power, especially in the context of people who are in the midst of sin. And so to restore the sinner is to act with humility, recognizing that although you do have the spiritual upper hand, so to speak, in this instance, we are all susceptible to and given to the temptation of other sin, like pride, or for the wealthy, you need to remember that you're susceptible to being under-resourced in other areas. 
The difference between burden in verse 2 and load in verse 5 is also important to understand. Why are we to share, you know, share somebody else's burdens but carry our own load? What does that mean? Two different words mean two different things. The word burden in verse 2 is something that you cannot fix or restore without others' help. The word load in verse 5 is something that you are expected to take care of yourself. And the reality is, is that we all have loads that we are responsible for and that we should manage ourselves, not expecting other people to do everything for us. Galatians 6.5 is the anti-entitlement verse. There are times for all of us when we need others to carry us, but to think that others should always carry us, no. Paul is making the point about generous compassion, but he's also making the point about the reality of responsibility that we have in life. Remember, as you read Genesis 3, God pronounces three curses. They are not comprehensive. They are representative of the curse that we all live under now because of original sin. The third curse, though, is where creation went from an ethos of generosity to an ethos of greed and covetousness. It's, it's the curse where we went from the cultural mandate to be a blessing to the me mandate of Genesis 3 and everything after that until the new Jerusalem comes. Uh, Tom, our other founding pastor, used to say this all the time. People tend to think that only wealthy people are greedy. That's just not true. Everyone is susceptible to greed. It's part of our fallen, broken nature. Poor people are also greedy. And in fact, often it is their greed that keeps them poor. There's that sowing and reaping issue again. So what we should understand, and I'm hoping we understand from all of this, is that the greatest act of generosity ever in history was Jesus on the cross. He traded his righteousness, his holiness, for our sin, for our wickedness. Okay. In, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 8, Paul again says, we reap what we sow. The only place in our lives, in history, in any context, anywhere, where this is not true is at the cross of Christ. We sowed sin. We reap righteousness from Jesus. That should blow our minds and make us hilariously generous people. Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you for, again, your word and its truth in these topical areas and how they challenge us and call us, but also remind us of, of your glorious grace and mercy and compassion and love and all that you have done for us. God, we thank you for that. And God, frankly, I'll just tell you, I, I think it's, it, to preach a message like this in this particular context is not so tough. And so I thank you for that. What a gift this church is. I thank you for that. Just pray that we would understand and recognize how blessed we are. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.
Before we go into communion, I, I really want to reiterate what I was just praying about. And it's been said many times from uh, this platform by other people as well. Uh, we've been a congregation for a little over 10 years. And, and I don't know that I've ever been around a more generous congregation. Uh, and, and when I say generous, I, I don't necessarily mean our money. We make budget all the time, as far as I can remember. So that's true. But what I, what I also mean is that we are, we are generous people with our time, with our service. We continually come to the table when we're called upon. Whatever, whatever ministry or whatever um, passion that we have that we bring to the front of the church on a Sunday morning, you people respond to with great generosity. And we're thankful for that. The staff recognizes that. The elders recognize that. And we know how blessed we are. I started today by talking about how we've been blessed by a great uh, music and worship team. I think that's indicative of how God wants to bless us because we're a blessing to others. And I thank you for that and I appreciate that. And I know probably as a church we shouldn't pat ourselves on the back too often, but I think in this case we can. And maybe it's time for us to be a little bit better about celebrating our victories rather than flagellating ourselves constantly. And so that's why I wanted to bring that up. And so as a response to that, we're going to sing one more song and we're going to come to the Lord's table. If you are someone who knows Jesus, I hope you understand the significance of what we're about to do. This is a sacrament. Um, one of the core values at Redemption Church is we take God seriously, but not ourselves. I love that core value. That's about my favorite one. Um, and so, because we take God seriously, we take communion seriously. It's a sacrament. And it's something that Jesus set up on the last night of his life on earth. He changed the Passover meal to say, this is going to be the last sacrifice that humans are going to need. And on the cross, he said, it is finished. And that is borne out in his teaching at that last dinner when he broke the bread and he said, this is my body and it's for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. This is also for you. And Paul reminds us that every time we eat the bread and take the cup, we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again. It's a big deal. And he invites us here. He invites us here because of our need, our need for a savior, and he invites us here for, because of our need to celebrate that we have a Savior. And so when you're ready, come to the center aisle and come to one of the communion uh, stations. When you get back to your seat, when you're ready, you can take the elements. There will be people standing in the wings if you'd like to pray or if you have any questions. And then when, you're, when you feel led, if you feel led, then eventually stand and join with the singing of this last song. Let's do that now.
Thank you guys for being here and worshiping with us this morning. Uh, Let me pray this over us as we go into the week. To this end, I pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Go and live all of life all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.